This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Before the country debated Obamacare and any plan to replace it, Colorado landed on its own health care solution. And the effort was bipartisan. In 2006, the state legislature said, let's figure out what a Colorado plan to ensure more people would look like. Well, Bill Lindsay chaired this commission. He recently retired as president of a Denver insurance brokerage, and he's once again helping the state grapple with health care issues. He speaks with my colleague, Ryan Warner. Hi, Bill. Good morning. The Affordable Care Act became law in 2010, but four years before that, the Colorado legislature set up this Blue Ribbon Commission for Health Care Reform under a Republican governor, Correct. I might add. What prompted its creation? I think it was the concern about the number of uninsured. So we were dealing with approximately 18 percent of the state's population at that point that did not have insurance. Okay. And that has been reduced certainly under the Affordable Care Act. It's somewhere around 7 percent now. What was it then? It was around 18 percent. 18 percent. I have to think of, of some of the other history here. Massachusetts at that time would have been rolling out its own plan, right? So did Colorado look to Massachusetts at the time? We did. So one of the things that Massachusetts did, which was novel at the time, was to create what they called a connector. Today, we call it an exchange. So people could uh, effectively buy insurance on the internet and be able to shop for more affordable options. And again, that was under a Republican governor in Massachusetts. Uh, The plan was deemed Romney care. It was. Yeah. Uh, Well, what was your group supposed to do to help crack this nut of the uninsured? Uh, Several things. The primary activity was to solicit proposals from Coloradans who had some interest in um, helping solve this problem. And we received approximately 14 proposals from individuals or groups who noodled about how they might structure a solution. We took those then and we uh, had an outside uh, consultant who did a macroeconomic analysis of each one of them to help price them. Um, and, And then the commission's job was to sort through and pick the winner, so to speak, the one that we thought that was most appropriate. And these came from the left. They came from the right. They, I think, included the notion of a single-payer system, which has often been a part of the conversation. Exactly. That was one of the proposals that was received. Well, what did you recommend? And and how much does it look like what there is in place today? um, What we recommended was a consolidation of many of them. We didn't pick a particular proposal, which, by the way, upset some people. But we thought we would just pick some of the best ideas and and consolidate that into the commission's own proposal, if you will. What were some of the best ideas as you saw them? Well, number one, some major insurance reform so that we would, first of all, require people to have health insurance. um, The individual mandate. Correct. That was one of the recommendations. The second was changing the way insurance companies operated in terms of underwriting pre-existing conditions and, and that sort of thing. The second major activity was the expansion of Medicaid so that individuals, particularly childless adults, could be able to obtain coverage under Medicaid. And the third was to provide a low-income subsidy for individuals who would be mandated under this proposal um, but would help them afford the insurance that was mandated. Now, those sound awfully familiar to me as elements of the Affordable Care Act, the expansion of Medicaid, the individual mandate, which has been pretty controversial, and some insurance reform. Exactly. 
That's not to say that – so the core principles were the same as the Affordable Care Act. There are a lot of significant other differences, however, um, where the Affordable Care Act, um, in my view, maybe ran into some rocky shoals um, as it was rolled out and implemented. Give me some examples. Well, one example was the the insurance reforms – took all of the various insurance rates and compressed them. And so what that meant was for young individuals buying insurance maybe for the first time, their cost was going to be considerably higher than what it was before the Affordable Care Act. That that precluded some people from being able to obtain insurance. And of course, you want young, healthy people in the pool uh, Precisely. So that not everyone in the pool is older and sick. That's right. And that was one of the key elements of why an individual mandate, we thought, made sense is to get everybody in the pool. Uh, an, another area of um, sort of divergence, if you will, is the the Affordable Care Act has a number, I think it's 43 different taxes or fees that are required in order to be able to afford the program. And um, some of those have been problematic in terms of uh, increasing cost to individuals or to uh, providers of care or to insurance companies that have resulted overall in an increase in the in the in the cost of of the plans. Okay, and those didn't exist in the Colorado specific version. You're saying that's correct. Mm. Um, the other area that I think has been problematic is that the Affordable Care Act included an employer mandate. Our commission didn't go there because we didn't, although we considered it, we didn't think it was necessary because the vast majority of employers already provided insurance. The employer mandate, in order to enforce it, the Affordable Care Act, brought with it a significant administrative burden on employers, which has increased their cost and made it more difficult for them to continue to offer coverage. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are considering the curious case of the history of health care reform in Colorado. You may not know that years before the Affordable Care Act, there was a commission created here to come up with a plan to reduce the uninsured. We're looking back at its conversations, and uh, its chair, Bill Lindsay, joins us. He's actually involved uh, still today in helping the state bring the cost of health care down. We'll talk about that in just a, a moment, Bill Lindsay. But were, were the conversations tough? Did people leave this commission upset over the compromise? Um Ryan, the conversations were very tough because you're dealing with tough issues here. And a lot of them are, are philosophical. Uh, it crossed uh, bounds in terms of ideology for many people. And of the uh, total number of commissioners, we had two um, actually uh, present a, a dissenting opinion to the legislature. So it wasn't unanimous. But we did receive, I believe, 23 affirmative votes out of the commission of, I think it was 25. Um, So 23 individuals finally came to the resolution that this was the best alternative available to meet the goal. You talked about some of the divergences between the plan that Colorado came up with and what eventually became the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Perhaps you see those as weaknesses in the ACA. I'd like to have your view of the GOP proposal to replace Obamacare. Again, you were in the employee benefits business for some 40 years and uh, have helped consult with the state on this question. What do you see when you look at the GOP replacement proposal? Um, A couple of things. I think uh, it's unfortunate, but I see the GOP 
following and making the same errors that the Democrats did when they passed the Affordable Care Act, in that they are rushing something through and not attempting to make it bipartisan. That was the greatest failing under the Affordable Care Act and resulted in, frankly, mistakes that were made in in the statute. Uh, You remember um, one of the key uh, Democratic leaders said, well, we have to pass it so we know what's in it. Well, it, the same kind of mentality is occurring right now among the Republican caucus. I think that's unfortunate. I think the second thing is the Republicans are focusing on coverage, which is exactly what the Democrats did, providing people with ins- access to insurance and so on, but they're not addressing the cost of health care. And if you don't address the cost of health care, even though you may make it available for people, they may not be able to afford to pay for it. I'll say that the independent analysis shows that the GOP plan to replace Obamacare would shrink the deficit, but result in millions more uninsured. uh, And that would increase over the years of the plan. What became of Colorado's state-specific health plan? It's a great question. Um, it was begun – there was a beginning of implementation of it. So one of the key aspects of the plan, one of the recommendations was to increase reimbursement to primary care physicians treating Medicaid patients. Because a lot of doctors were steering clear of Medicaid patients because it wasn't financially viable for them. That Absolutely. So we put forth a recommendation to increase that reimbursement pretty substantially. The new governor, Bill Ritter at the time, a Democrat, enjoyed that proposal and um, and started to implement it. But right then, 2008, you remember what happened to our economy and the state revenue projections were pretty frightening. And so the state had to unfortunately pull back from that very important step. The next part of that would have been the expansion of Medicaid. Again, that that had to be pulled off the table also because the state couldn't afford to do it at that time. You are on another commission created by the legislature now to look at lowering the costs of health care, which you say is so important, not just changes to insurance, but lowering the cost of care. Uh, in about the last minute, what can you do on a state level to, do, to achieve that? It's a great question. And, and the way you phrase that question, Ryan, is, is a very apropos because from a state standpoint, we're limited as to the kinds of things that we can impact. Pharmaceuticals is an example. All of the regulations around pharmaceuticals come out of Washington and they're national. So a state really has limited ability. But the state can do certain things. And so a couple of key recommendations are, number one, increasing transparency. How much does the doctor visit cost? How much does it cost to have an elective procedure at a hospital? Um, So that people can shop for health care services and bring market pressure to bear to hopefully dampen those costs. How about one other example? One other example would be increasing access to data. When we think about trying to address some of the problems in the current system, very frankly, there's a limited amount of data available upon which to make those decisions. And so the risk is, without adequate data or information, policymakers will assume things and it may make it worse. So increasing the availability of data would be helpful. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Bill Lindsay, speaking with Ryan Warner. He now chairs the Colorado Commission on Affordable Health Care. It was created by the state legislature to study rising health care costs and ways to lower them. He's been involved in state-level efforts to change the health care system for the last decade. 
Well, it's tax season, and if you're filling out a Colorado form this year, you have an option to donate some of your refund money to a charity. Colorado was the first state in the country to offer this tax checkoff, and it's collected more than $1.6 million. Well, that was just last year. Now, though, some lawmakers say they're frustrated by parts of the program. I'm joined by Brian Eason of the Denver Post, who recently wrote a story about the controversy, along with his colleague, John Frank. Brian, welcome to the program. Thanks. Appreciate you for having me. Yeah, there are thousands of nonprofits in Colorado, and this year's forum lists just about 20 of them uh, that taxpayers can choose to donate to. Uh, last year, those charities received between 30000 and $250,000. How do these charities get on that list? So the, the process, uh, as it stands today, uh, a lawmaker has to sponsor a bill mm-hmm. uh, f- for your group. Um, it goes through the committee process, uh, typical how a bill becomes a law type stuff. So you have to – so a charity has to actually find someone to sponsor a bill for them? Yes, exactly. Now, that can be pretty difficult, I'm assuming, to, to, to do that. It is. I mean, I don't know too many people who uh, have that type of uh, wherewithal and, and access to politicians and, and know how to, how to navigate that process. Um, if you're you know, a, a small nonprofit, you might not even have uh, the resources to go to think to build those relationships. And does that mean that these charities that do this? Do they may have a lobbyist or something like that that can can advocate for them in the legislature? A lot of them do. A lot of them do. Um, there was one that was added, added this year that, that actually doesn't. It was um, uh, Urban Peak, which works with, with homeless youth around the state. They actually, um, one of their former board members, Representative Leslie Harrod, was elected to the legislature this past November. And so um, they approached her thinking, oh, well, we've got a built-in advocate now because she, she worked with the group in the past. She knows the good works that we do. So hopefully they'd approached her and she was she was more than happy to sponsor that bill for them. It, there's nothing then to say that a charity can't stop going doing this themselves, like you say, going to see a legislature as opposed to uh, hiring a lobbyist and things like that. Certainly. Yeah. And, 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 and talking to some of the charities, a few of them told me that actually those relationships and having a lawmaker willing to advocate for you is is more important than the lobbying aspect. Not to say that the lobbying doesn't help, but um, the biggest thing they said was having someone willing to kind of go to bat for you. Does that create a conflict of interest, especially with with, uh, the representative you mentioned? Um, So we we, we actually looked at quite a few ethics opinions on that. um, And the way the state ethics code is written, it, it what triggers a conflict is when it the, the lawmaker can personally benefit from the legislation. In this case, there wasn't really any evidence that Representative Harrod would have benefited personally. Um, and even if she'd been a, a current board member, the ethics opinions reflected that she could have brought this legislation. Now, there's a set number of, of charities that can be on this list. Is that correct? A set number? Yeah. The, so the maximum right now is 20. And that's been revised upwards over the years as, as lawmakers have tried to put more charities on the list. Now, is there anything that can force a charity off the list and making room for, let's say, a new group that wants to try this? So right now, the limit is you have to raise uh, at least $50,000 your third year on the form. You get a two-year grace period to kind of get your fundraising going a little bit and, and get some awareness out there. Um, but that, that, that limit's been revised, too. I mean, a few years ago, it was $75,000 that you had to raise. Yeah. Before that, it was even higher. And what lawmakers did in 2016 was there were there were about six 
I want to say half a dozen groups that were going to come off the list because they didn't meet the fundraising threshold. And the legislature was like, just kidding. You guys can stay on. We're going to make the threshold a little bit easier. So that is that something that legislators have been critical of about this program? Is that their main complaint? I, it's not the main one, but it, it's definitely one of them. I mean, there's there's palpable frustration at the legislature about the fact that the rules are seem to be constantly changing. And the fact that, uh, as one lawmaker put it, they're they're choosing between friends. I mean, no one wants to say no to a charity that's presumably doing really good work in the community. You know, it, it sounds like they they continue to weaken the rules in ways that favor the charities that are already on the list. Is that what you're finding? I think that's I think that's accurate. I mean, the, the other way to look at it was by expanding it. It it did make the queue, the waiting list, uh, it did clear that out. So everyone who was on the waiting list was able to get on as well. But there is a clear advantage for groups that are already already on it. All right. D- does the state vet these groups to make sure they're spending the money appropriately? I mean, how does the consumer know whether their money is going to the right place when they check that box? That's an, that's an excellent question. Um, so nonprofits are, are regulated by the state. They have to fill out, you know, all sorts of paperwork just to be a nonprofit. They have to file federal tax forms that are publicly available. Um, but for the for the groups that are on the list, the state doesn't do anything else that it doesn't do for a group that's not on the list. Have there been any findings of wrongdoings by these Colorado charities on this list? There haven't. Are there other places in Colorado or, excuse me, other places in the country where something similar uh, is going on? Yeah. So there's there's a number of states around the country that have these programs and a lot of them have have different different ways of administering it. Um, uh, There are cases of actual problems in New York and California where the money wasn't being doled out properly. That uh, the way that Colorado is administered seems to eliminate that that issue. Um, uh, there's another state, Oregon, that requires some pretty extensive uh, reporting requirements from the nonprofits. They have to come back to the state every two years and say, this is how we spent the money that we got from the taxpayer donations. Um, there's other requirements like they have to, to even get on the list. They have to f- go through this application process and an independent commission picks which ones get on, which kind of takes a little bit outside of what is a pretty political process here in Colorado. And there was an effort to reform Colorado's program earlier in this legislative session. What did that do? There was. So what it would have done was it would have forced uh, nonprofits to rotate uh, off after five years and there would be a a period where they couldn't get back on. So um, American Red Cross, for instance, is one of the groups on there. They could be on for five years in a row. Then they'd have to uh, stay off for for five years before they could get get back on. Um, There was a lot of pushback, though, from from, – not surprisingly, the groups that are that are already on the list, they don't want, you know, uh, and, and I don't blame them. I mean, they, they make a lot of money that goes towards services in their communities from this program. Um, so any changes that um, that threaten what they what they make already through this program are, are going to be viewed with quite a bit of a bit of pushback. Brian, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Denver Post reporter Brian Eason and his colleague John Frank recently wrote about the state's charity checkoff program. People from all over the world came to Colorado for marijuana. In the last three years, the state has sold $3 billion worth of pot. 
Yet there are still few places to actually smoke all that marijuana. CPR's Ben Marcus reports that'll change soon. A blinking open sign hangs on the outside of an old building in a dark industrial zone just outside Denver city limits. When the front door opens, smoke billows out. Inside is one of the state's few private pot clubs, called iBake, and recently members celebrated its four-year anniversary. Happy birthday to you! Glassy-eyed patrons bounce off each other in the small space. Smoke hangs just below the ceiling. People can legally smoke pot here because the club is private, they're all members, and it's outside city limits, away from city police. Not the easiest way to make money, but Steve Nelson Jr. started iBake to fill a need. It's recreation, so it's to have fun, it's to relax, it's to lounge. You don't necessarily want to do that just by yourself. But that's exactly how many tourists have to use it. Guys like Alberto Aviles, who's here from New York. He had no problem finding a place to buy in one of Denver's 150 pot stores, but he couldn't find one place to smoke. Even in the hotels, like the Ramada Inn, they gave me a problem. You know, tried to kick me out. Yeah, just off the smell. He says they want to charge him $150 to clean his room. He eventually found his way here to iBank, 30 minutes from downtown. Some research from the state suggests that tourists are cooling to Colorado's pot scene, and a lack of places to use it might be why. Vicki Marble is a Republican state senator. We do not want people coming on vacation and leaving on probation. Marble is part of a bipartisan group searching for a solution. A bill is making its way through the state legislature now that officially allows private marijuana clubs like iBake. But members would still have to BYOP. Bring your own pot. It's not ideal for consumers, um, but it is a step in the right direction. That's Kayvon Calabari, a marijuana businessman and advocate. He led an alternative effort, a voter initiative, to force the city of Denver to create a kind of marijuana version of a liquor license. Basically, any business that doesn't already serve alcohol could let people bring in and use marijuana as long as they get neighborhood approval and keep kids out. The city is shaping the details of that now. It's not only something that obviously Colorado is dealing with, but every single state that's legalizing recreational cannabis, this will be a conundrum that gets recreated. The conundrum is in part around smoking. Colorado, like many states, doesn't allow indoor smoking in public places. But Calabari says many people believe that's the best way to use marijuana. Um, I don't like edibles. I don't like the way they make me feel. I don't feel that vaporization gives me the sensation that I'm looking for. Good news for him. The state measure would allow smoking in the private members-only clubs. But Governor John Hickenlooper has said he'll veto that bill if indoor smoking is allowed. In Denver's city version of pot clubs, people could use marijuana edibles and vape inside businesses like laundromats or yoga studios. But because these would be open to the public, smoking would still have to stay outside. Rachel O'Brien, a concerned Denver resident who's long fought against the expansion of pot, thinks that smoking indoors or not, this is all a bad idea. You know, the encouragement of anything, whether it's alcohol or marijuana, while you're going about your daily business of, you know, doing laundry, is, is that a good direction for society to take? And my guess is not. She hopes that at least the city and the state will continue to keep good data to measure the potential effects of the pot clubs. They're expected to open as soon as this summer. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. Lots of musicians have covered Stevie Wonder's superstition, so much so it's become an American standard. Very
Del Norte, Colorado native singer and guitarist Grayson Earhart worked it into his standard set list and played it at a music convention in California this January. But this time, to his complete surprise, Stevie Wonder joined him on stage to sing along. A YouTube video of the unplanned meetup has been viewed and shared thousands of times. Grayson, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thanks for having me. Take us back to that day in January. Uh, did you have any idea that Stevie Wonder was was going to be at this convention? Um, you know, what was funny is when we were headed over to the convention, I was talking to a buddy who was kind of giving me pointers and tips. And he was like, you know, it was crazy. Last year, uh, I got to take a photo with Stevie Wonder. And I was like, oh, man, that's so cool. You know, so basically what what I went to is uh, National Association of Music Merchants. And it's basically a giant guitar center full of famous people. It's okay. like <laughs> the coolest place for a musician to go. Um, big industry meetup and and I got this really great slot. It was right during like a lunchtime. And, you know, it, it was basically the time when everybody would be uh, consolidating into this area. Um, so I was really excited about that. And I wrote out a set list on like a napkin or something. And I began my set and played about, you know, half of the set. And then I got to Superstition and I said something about it. I heard that he was kind of around the area. Well, you've been covering Superstition for years, you, you, you know, in your set list, but you only sing the first verse. Mm -hmm. Why is that? You know, I, that's kind of a lazy thing, I guess. I, I, I knew all of these songs and, you know, sometimes, you know, I'll play in a setting where nobody's listening to me and they would never know. Um, and I would play it live every now and then and nobody ever brought it up to me. And I, I don't know why they didn't, you know, why somebody would be like, you know, hey, why don't you learn the rest of the song? You play it all the time. Um, but I did this kind of uh, this this little trick where I just play the first verse again, just quieter. And, and it worked. <laughs> yeah, it worked. Everybody was like, oh, this is different. Well, well you finished that abbreviated version mm -hmm. of the song. And out of the blue, there's some murmuring. Stevie mm -hmm. Wonder's in the audience. He's there. And he comes out of the audience. Yep. And in the video that's gone viral, you can hear your surprise. Yeah. Oh my god. Stevie, I'm sorry, I don't actually know the second and third verse yet. <laughs> but that is so cool. Oh my god. <laughs> Hello, Stevie. What was going on in your mind at that time? Were you shocked? Were you embarrassed? I was in total shock. I looked at my brother and uh, my buddy Ryan, who was, they were filming it. And you can kind of see it in the video. Uh, my eyes are just like, that's this isn't real and i look at them and their eyes are just wide open and their mouths are just like to the floor and and i'm like yeah i guess this is real life right now <laughs> and when he came over i it, i kind of went into this daze this like autopilot mode it felt like somebody was just coming up to jam with me and i kind of went into a haze and uh yeah then he was like i'm gonna teach you the words you don't know all right here's grayson and me here we go one two three now, you can't really hear this in the clip, but you're playing the guitar, you're singing with Stevie, and he's giving you the lyrics in your ear. Right. How was that, all that going on at the same time, with all these people watching? I think a lot of the times, ner nervous energy turns into excitement for me, and I really try to, like, channel that. But at that time, I was just kind of... I, I knew the melody, you know, but I didn't know the words, and... Um, he gave me enough time to really, to really do it. But I mean, that could have gone so poorly. <laughs> that could have gone so poorly. Uh, and it's crazy, you know, watching it again, and 
how how well it actually went and how, what what everybody's saying about it. And you do a vocal run, then he does a vocal run. When did it become real for you? When did you snap out of it and be like, this is actually happening? About 75% of the way through it, honestly. He, uh, yeah, he did some run um, after like the second chorus that was just ridiculous. Barely any vocalist on this planet can do stuff like that. And that's when I, I, you can see it in my face. My face lit up and I'm like, holy cow, I'm not just jamming with another musician right now. <laughs> I'm jamming with a legend. And that was, that was pretty mesmerizing to hear him, you know, and I was like right by him and, and feeling like the stage shake as he, you know, did his, did his thing. And, um, yeah, what a, what an experience. What kind of responses have you seen from this video? Before this video, I was building an audience with um, more of a guitar-centric uh, fan base, and um, I, ha- I had been been building that for a while. And when that happened, it basically shifted my entire fan base to one that's like incredibly niche-based to one that's kind of more mainstream. So my strategy as an uh, as an artist has completely changed because I have this in, this entirely new fan base that I really have to uh, make sure they're happy with with me as well and so yeah my, my it, it changed my life like it changed my entire outlook on being an artist as you mentioned you write and play your own music uh, of course let's listen to your latest single cave It's an instrumental uh, acoustic song. It's quite a bit different than yeah. uh, Superstition, as you say. Yeah. Uh, has the video with Stevie brought more attention on your music? Uh, have these people that have been uh, seeing this video translated to what you've traditionally been doing? You know, only the people that have seen it on, on Facebook, really. Um, I had a video on, on YouTube that got tens of thousands of views, but... On Facebook, there was a lady that was there that took a video on her phone and far exceeded the numbers that my mind got. It got like, I think it's over 4 million views right now. And I've seen a lot of comments come from that and mainly on my manifest tune. Um, and that was one where I sing and, and play at the same time and kind of do that uh, tap slap style. Tap slap. I, I, don't, I don't know what that is. So I, I play this style of guitar playing that is, uh, it's called percussive finger style. I will tap the guitar, um, kind of like Eddie Van Halen, and then I'll slap it and get harmonics and, and these cool tones out of it. So I combine a lot of that or I'll slap it for percussive elements and kind of have like a cajon vibe behind my music. Daybreak, too much light for sleepy eyes.
So how does superstition kind of fit into that vibe of your music? It seems like a little bit different, or, or is it not that different? You know, the guitar playing on it isn't really that different. It's I'm 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 hitting the guitar strings, and it's creating a percussive a vibe. And uh, you know, the songwriting is a lot different. Obviously, um, you know, it's not as guitar centric. It's a lot more vocal. But that's also a reason why I played it because it really was allowed me to you know showcase my vocals on it. Have you finally learned all the lyrics to Superstition now that you've uh, <laughs> met with the man? You know, I recorded a uh, a cover actually recently, um, and I can't, I still can't bring myself to play the third verse because Stevie hasn't taught it to me. <laughs> yeah, so you'll need him to be in your ear. I still, actually... I still need him to teach me the third verse. <laughs> Grayson, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Grayson Earhart's latest release is the single Cave. Hear more of his music and watch his performance with Stevie Wonder at CPRnews.org. You can also hear his recent performance in the CPR Performance Studio at OpenAirCPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. While human sexuality is the focus of Laura Pritchett's new book, she says this is not a romance novel or simply a book full of sex scenes. It's called The Blue Hour and is set in an isolated, fictional Colorado mountain town. Pritchett lives northwest of Fort Collins. Laura, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on again. The idea for this novel started with a series of short stories, a short story of yours, uh, published in Sun Magazine about a decade ago. Uh, Briefly, what was that one story about? That story was a a love story in which I was trying to uh, really get at the sentiment of love without getting sentimental. And in particular, it was about sexual fantasy and violence and some other taboo subjects. And I got more fan mail from that particular story than I've gotten for my novels. Um, you know, just people writing in to say thank you for being so honest about such a private subject. And I thought, you know, I want to turn this into a novel. Would you uh, mind reading a short excerpt uh, from from it for me? Oh, sure. Um from that story, uh, Joe and Gretchen are the main characters, and they're newly fallen in love. They're both in their 30s, and uh, so far haven't yet any, met anyone yet on the, on the planet or in the town to uh, fall in love with, but they, they fall and they fall hard. And so Gretchen, is, I'll read this little paragraph. Joe and I have the exact same hair color. So dark brown, it's almost black, only his is curly, and mine hangs straight to my waist. Our hair is graying, Joe's near his temples, and mine spread all throughout, and his is softer than mine, because the gray in mine has turned it less supple. I love it when he takes my hair up suddenly and starts to braid it, which is something he knows how to do from braiding harnesses, and I love pushing my hands up through his hair and feeling the spot, soft place where scalp ends and hair begins. What was it about Under the Apple Tree that seemed to resonate with so many of your readers? You said you had more fan mail from anyone uh, from for that story. Well, you know, 
I don't know how much, <laughs> how much I can say on the air, but I think it really delves into um, the role that violent fantasies have in loving relationships and where those fantasies come from. And I had done actually quite a bit of academic research to um, find out more about that, but I put it into fiction and, and two people kind of grappling with the most tender of love, but having um, um, fantasies that that defied that tenderness. You know, there's just such a wide array of, of that. When you say human sexuality, what, what do you mean by that exactly? Well, yes, this novel is is very much about the human body and the ways people come together. But um, I don't just mean two people in bed. I mean all the many, many ways that we um, connect, whether it's flirting or wishing we had someone in our life or but not getting that or um, a long, sturdy relationship that's having its ups and downs, but basically the physical part of our relationships with, with others, um, whether they're appropriate or not appropriate or messy or frowned upon or completely loving and the best that there is. Um, that's why I say it's not a romance novel. It's, it's real messy life. You know, it's not Hollywood. It's not Hallmark. It's, it's the true mess of it all. And are there other authors that, that maybe you've looked to, to that, that often explore human sexuality in their work? Yeah. So when I got the idea for this novel, which was 10 years ago, at least maybe 15 years ago, I started paying attention to contemporary American writers who were writing sex scenes and who didn't just take a chapter break. And I sometimes joke that my library at my home looks like a teenager's rifle through it because all of the pages are marked and underlined wherever there's a sex scene, you know, and all. What do you, <laughs> what do you little... mean by a chapter break? What do you mean by that? Oh, well, so many authors, even really good, uh, brave authors, I think, take two characters who we're learning about and we're really invested in, and they go off to the bedroom and suddenly there's a chapter break and the next day their lives start again. And that frustrates me a bit because I think, you know, Human sexuality is the point where we become, we reveal a lot to each other. We're very vulnerable. Um, and I don't know if taking a, a chapter break and not showing us that scene is serving the reader or the story very well. So I wanted to look at authors who were brave enough to show us that scene, you know, instead of the chapter break. Um, and there's so many I love. There's Susan Mimnot is one of my favorite. Her book Rapture is fantastic. But Jane Smiley, certainly, and Charles Baxter. Steve Almond is a very funny writer about sex. Um, Scott Spencer. Um, I just read a beautiful novel by a Wyoming contemporary writer named Brad Watson about a woman who can't have sex her whole life. And it's all, but in certain ways, it's a very sexual novel. How, how do you think you were brave in this novel, The Blue Hour? Well, I feel like my goal as a writer, um, and as I mature as a writer, I hope this is always true, that I continue to get more courageous in saying things that other that's difficult to talk about that many other people won't say. Mm. Um, there's a famous quote, I think, by Eudora Welty that the way to become a better writer is simply to become more honest. And that's about the human condition is what she means. And um, there are things that uh, we don't talk about, mental illness, human sexuality, um, violence, that I think if you can really look at it um, and then look again, you know, every time I do a draft of a chapter, I would say, now, is this as honest you can get about these two people and where they're at? Or are you, are you playing it safe? And then I would try to dig deeper into what their real fears are, what their real 
hormones are doing to them, what they're, um, what they want out of life, how best to live their life, and and the things that prevent that, and just really give it an unflinching look and not avert my gaze and try to write something softer or simpler. And you actually teach a class about writing these scenes, isn't that correct? Well, at some point in time after I had, you know, hundreds of examples of good, what I considered good sex scenes, which were ones that were moving and powerful and made you feel something, and then versus bad sex scenes, which made you blush or wince or think, oh, dear, this really shouldn't have been in the book, or, or, or gratuitous, you know, that's another failure, I think. After I had all these examples, I thought, you know, I should teach this and just show people what I think, um, you know, works and what doesn't work and... So much of good. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I've spoken to authors who say it's very, very, very difficult to be that intimate with both their character themselves and then the the readers who who are looking at the pages. I think it is because so much of sex is kind of absurd or ridiculous or you get, uh, you know, cramps in your leg and things happen and it's messy. And to try to reveal that without getting too hallmarky or romance novelly is really tricky because it's such a tender, intimate, odd thing we do. Um, but I think the trick to writing good sex scenes and what I hoped I did is just it has to be absolutely grounded and embodied in the senses and not over intellectualized, which is what I see a lot with, you know, you know, high level writers is I think that they actually get kind of a weird stylized vocabulary to describe sex when really most of us aren't going around thinking of that in that way. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with author Laura Pritchett. She lives northwest of Fort Collins and has a new novel out called The Blue Hour. Now, almost every chapter of this book has a different narrator. And sometimes you switch from first person to second person and even third person. This gives the reader a variety of viewpoints. And while all these characters in Blue Mountain, that's the fictional Colorado town where you've set this book, have different things going on in their lives... A really tragic event illustrates just how interconnected they all are. What were the challenges um, and advantages of telling the story through so many voices? Yeah, most of my other books are told from one or two narrators. And in a way, that's a simpler trajectory. You have one character and you're moving from point A to point B. Um, The challenge and I think the courageous thing I tried to do in the narration of this book was to really make the town the central character and a little bit like the book Winesburg, Ohio, for anyone who's familiar with that, but really have the town be the central character and everyone has to vo- give their voice in order for the reader to understand the town and how everyone works together. And especially after a tragedy, which happens right at the first chapter, um, everyone is sent into what I call the blue hour of their lives, which is a time of transition, just like the blue hour, you know, in the night Between night, night sky. and day and the, the sunrise, night. sunrise type of thing? Yeah. yeah, it comes from the French phrase. I love this phrase, le bleu. It means the hour of blue. Uh, and it's an hour, I think, of sexuality, but also an hour of change. And so all of these characters are thrown into an hour of or a moment of change in their lives, and they really want to be better people or make sure they're not just drifting along in their lives. They really want to embrace their life and be the best partner they can be to their loved ones. And um, the tragedy forces them to do that. And because they're all in a small community, they're all going to run into each other and uh, bounce off of each other and help each other as they embark on this journey of, of deepening their lives. 
An interesting thing about Blue Mountain is that you made it not so far from Denver, yet the town's natural surrounding makes it really isolated, such as its mountainous terrain, weather, wild animals. And your characters have some close encounters with all of these things. What kind of relationship do the residents of Blue Mountain have with their natural surroundings, uh, fear, reverence for the area that they live in? Well, uh, and, and I'm sorry, it is, it's Blue Moon Mountain, correct? That's true. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Blue Moon Mountain. It is a fictional community, but I think many Coloradoans will recognize it as any number of the small mountain community enclaves that are dotted throughout our mountains um, in this beautiful, wonderful state. And, uh, you know, my own life is infused with bears showing up and, and mountain lions and that sort of thing. And that's true in the book as well. There's a bear that that connects and shows up in most of the chapters in one way or another. Um, it's a little bit like Faulkner's bear, I hope, but he's there kind of as a spiritual presence or a holy presence to remind them of the natural world. And, and he kind of lumbers throughout the do. book. Yeah, he does. And he's either at the dumpster or way up in a <laughs> den or he's all over the place. Um, and, and there's a big plot point where he act, the bear is actually putting two children in danger. So I won't give that part away, but the natural world, both the blizzard and the isolation and the animals um, and the birds, all of these things re- uh, really are the way that the community connects in a way because they live, they're so affected by this external environment and really love it and appreciate it. That's why they're there. What do you hope your book says about the human condition. Um, it, your book was recently included in a PBS NewsHour list of five books that will make you think about what it means to be human. I was really honored by that. It was such a delight. Uh, and if you don't mind, to answer your question, I'm just going to read one line from a character sure. in my book. Um, it's a woman reflecting on on your question, and she says, We all don't know what it is we want and how best to get there. Whether we've given our lives enough thought, which requires time, or if we've made the right decisions, which requires courage. And um, I guess that's what the book, it's humanity. I mean, that's what I'm hoping to give is is everybody's reassessing their lives and making sure they're giving their lives enough time and courage to live the best possible life in the, you know, in the time we are granted. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Award-winning author Laura Pritchett lives northwest of Fort Collins. Her new novel is The Blue Hour. Read an excerpt from it at cprnews.org. And that's our show. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <laughs>